From some time in the 23rd century, in a great domed city, sealed away from the forgotten world outside, it's the Digigods. And now, two guys who hate outside, they hate it, they hate it. Wade 5 and Mark 6. Ooh, Mark 6. That's a good one. Who sent that one in, Corey? That was brought to you by Brian Sagan. Rhymes with Menachem Begin. Flagging Gagan. <laughs> Corey, Corey gets into Jerry territory. It's always funny. I cut you off uh, last week. Uh, you were going to share something, and I can't remember what it was. What were you going to tell us last week? Oh, you know I remembered. <laughs> it was the time I maced myself. Oh, you maced yourself. Okay. When did you mace yourself? Well, I moved back to New York uh-huh. for a brief time. Yes. I was hoping it wasn't going to be a brief time, but it wound up being a brief time yeah. uh, in like the late 90s. Okay. Right? Sure. And my father was very worried about me. So he bought me a little can of mace. Uh-huh. It was this little <laughs> yellow canister with a black top, and you would press the black top, and the mace would squirt out. <laughs> and I was really curious to see, you know, because you see in movies, you know, uh-huh. Or you hear about how mace makes people just double over in uh-huh. complete intense pain. Yeah. And I thought, how bad could mace really be? <laughs> and I thought, there's really only one way to find out how bad mace could really be. And that would be to mace myself. So what I did was, I have to say... I, you I, did this on purpose? Oh, yeah. So what I did was, I took a, I, I, I took a little bit of mace, uh-huh. right? And I, sure. And I sprayed it on my... I sprayed a little bit on my finger, right? Uh-huh. And then I took seven molecules of mace and put it underneath my eye and then took another seven molecules of mace and put it underneath the other eye. Yeah. That was it. Okay. Like molecules under the eye. And let me tell you, it was so effing painful Uh for like 20 minutes. Just seven grams, seven granules of mace under my eye. Doubled over in horrible pain for 20 minutes. So that is the story of me macing myself. Okay. I mean, it wasn't as dramatic as me, like, trying to get the top off and accidentally spraying myself with mace. Uh, it was voluntary. Can't believe you did that. That's... I did do that. Okay. By the way, I still have that mace. I, I, I wonder if mace goes bad. You, you talk – are you going to start with that movie? Yeah, I was going to start – well, I, 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 we, we, we missed getting into some uh, foreign language stuff last week, so I uh, wanted you, to uh... – You do that. I'm going to Google can mace go okay. bad. Life, shelf life of mace. Really important foreign language films that we, uh, we want to make uh, mention of this week right out of the gate. Uh, Allmeyer's Folly uh, is a Chantal Ackerman film, the late Chantal Ackerman, uh, just an extraordinary great French filmmaker. She, this is one of her, her final films. Uh, this was made in 2011 a, and in Cambodia. And it's based on a uh, Joseph Conrad novel from 1895, Joseph Conrad's first novel. And it is very Joseph Conrad-like, uh, certainly. Uh, you, you know, the story of a man in, uh, in Southeast Asia, you know, the, the general vicinity of Cambodia, um, sort of the, the Westerner in the turbulent third world or in, in an exotic location, which is a scenario that is often ridiculed and, you know, the, the white savior thing. But Conrad, in Conrad's novels, that's not really how it is. It's, it's always much more meditative and existential. And uh, that certainly is uh, the way that this plays. It is a, it is a really beautiful poetic film. This is from uh, Icarus and uh, highly, highly recommended. This was uh, well-received at Toronto, Toronto Film Festival. Uh, we also have uh, the, uh, the new film from um, Pedro Almodovar, Julieta, which was a little bit of a – did you see Julieta during award season? Um, here's the thing. Pepper spray – Oh, dear. Pepper spray will – Expire. Well, here's the thing. What they're saying is that the active ingredient, the inflammatory, that uh, is what's so painful, that does not expire necessarily, but the aerosol can will not spray the advertised distance. That's what actually expires. Okay. So it seems like the active ingredient, the one that is is the inflammatory that makes it so painful, that takes a lot less time. Got to it. expire, the problem is that the, the propellant the, the will of course. expire. Okay, very good. So basically, it's been about you know 20 years since I moved to New York. I should probably get rid of that canister. Probably, I would think so, okay. yeah. 
So Julieta is a really, really interesting film from uh, Almodovar that really did not get a lot of traction just because it's not one of his best. So, you know, peak Almodovar tends to get treated by people as like, you know, junk, which it isn't. I feel like I feel like Almodovar either we're used to him making interesting films, so when a film is just a little less interesting, it's it's a disappointment. Yeah, right. Or his best days are behind him. No, 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 no. He still makes really interesting movies. This is a very interesting film. Um, Emma Suarez and Adriana Ugarte both play the same character at different stages in her uh, in her life, and um, it is a it is a fascinating portrait of this one woman's life, primarily detailed in in two uh, particular chapters, two episodes, two periods, um, looking for her daughter, her relationship with her daughter. And then, of course, in the present day, her daughter has has sort of gone off of of her own volition and disappeared. And it is um, uh, it has some very interesting twists and turns to it. And uh, as his films often do, some of them feel a little bit forced and contrived. I have to be honest. Uh, for the first time, I kind of felt like he was doing certain things narratively just to sort of force the next surprise in the story. I could I sort of saw the mechanics. It was like I was looking under the hood for a change. And um, that may be why it's minor Amadovar, but still the music, the acting, everything about it, the mood, the tone, it's just, it's so luxurious. And I just, I I still thoroughly enjoyed it. So there's that. Um, uh, The uh, the Lovers on the Bridge is out finally on Blu-ray, courtesy of Kino. This is interesting because um, we, uh, we're starting to get some Miramax films trickling out on, uh, on Blu-ray. The Miramax Library, you know, is still kind of a mess. They are, uh, they're, they're the, the new owners, and there are new owners. They don't really know how to exploit it, and they aren't film people, and they, you know, the previous owners were going to do some new Miramax films, and, and nobody really, it's, it's, it's a mess. It, Harvey should have this. He would know what to do, and these movies would all get the, the, the A-list treatment, and we'd get them. But otherwise, it's just sort of sitting there languishing, and they're, they're sort of li- sub-licensing these things out to people as, as need be. Um, so we're going to get a, a trickle of them, but uh, for now we're getting certainly some significant ones. Lovers on the Bridge is a is a great one. Leos Carax made this uh, and got savaged for it. Uh, Juliette Binoche and Denis Levant basically playing homeless people who live under uh, uh, Pont Neuf in Paris. It was called Les Amants du Pont Neuf is the original French title, and um, it's a really interesting, daring film. Uh, it 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 was it was savaged in France because it was so expensive at the time, needlessly so. But I think uh, in hindsight, it's a really, really interesting movie, and uh, it, it goes into some very, very uh, unusual and unorthodox uh, tangents. But uh, what's also significant is that Colcoa is coming up. I know you hate it when I talk about Colcoa. You know what? I I I, uh, I emailed for a press credential. They never got back to me. Oh, they will. I'll uh, it'll, we'll make it we'll make it happen. Your Lafka Lafka gets uh lug, gets luxury access to uh, Colcoa. I would think so, right? Yeah, absolutely. They never email me back. Uh, just hit him again. You know why? Because the guy's name is True Fart. There you go. That's Francois. True Fart. You know you know Francois. I'm probably met him at some point. Okay. He needs to get me so a job. Now, he needs to get me a job in Paris. Uh, you know what? Let's let's hit him up. Let's let's see what we can do. Right, Bart Truffard, and he's the, and Francois is the best. I just adore him. He has he has worked wonders with that festival. So oh, that's yeah. the City it's of Light great C- festival, City of Light, City of Angels festival, French films in L.A. Uh, and um, uh, Lovers on the Bridge is going to be showing this year as a special selection by Damien Chazelle. This is the Damien Chazelle chose this. This is a film that he loves. Of course, the youngest ever Oscar winner for La La Land now. Who's half French, by the way. His dad's French. Uh, so that is out on Blu-ray from Kino. Highly recommended. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful transfer. Uh, interesting movie, Just a Sigh. French-language film with Gabriel Byrne, of all people. Gabriel Byrne and uh, Emmanuel Devoe. And uh, this is from Distrib Films, distributed through Icarus. And uh, I was unfamiliar this even existed, but Emmanuel DeVoe is just so wonderful. And uh, I thought this, even though this is... Um, uh, a, a little bit of a weird pairing with Gabriel Byrne. I thought it was it was really really sweet. It uh, the, the the press compares it a little bit to Brief Encounter as far as you know a, a an unusual romance people who meet by accident. But I I don't really see it that way. I kind of see it a little bit more in a, in a I don't know. Uh, Woman Next Door might be an example, like the uh, the Truffaut film. That, that's a little bit more the, uh, the the vein that this is in. Uh, maybe Man and a Woman-ish. Uh, but it's a really, really sweet film. 
And then uh, still on the French film uh, vein, we've got Being 17, the new Andre Teshine film, which is kind of minor Teshine, but it's still really, really good. This was a bit of a hit at the Berlin Film Festival. It's on Blu-ray from Strand, and uh, it is essentially looking at, um, you know, he's been dealing with youth for a while now, all the way back to Wild Reads, dealing with the, the, the struggles of growing up under certain circumstances in France, sexual awakening and all that. This is continuing that uh, that thrust that he's been doing for a while now, and uh, it was co-written with Celine Shama, who did Girlhood. So he, you know, they both kind of work in a little bit of the same uh, vein, and uh, looking at a, you know teenagers in France who come from different backgrounds, very much in the current discussion about immigration and European identity. Um, it, it, it gets into all of that stuff, and uh, it's got uh, Sandrine Kiberlin in it, who I always think is just a wonderful actress. So that's a, you know, it's typically cool Teshine. And then lastly, Mark, Paul Verhoeven. So uh, we Global got... Global Cop? Uh, yes, the, the, the director of Basic Instinct and Total Recall, who uh, directed uh, Isabelle Huppert to an Oscar nomination in a French-language film. How did that happen? Hey, he's gone back home. You know what? It's, how, how it's supposed often, to be. That's supposed to be an English language film. You know that originally. How often, has, how often has a European director come to America, figuring that they would cash in, yeah. didn't work out, and then they go back to their home country? Okay. So here's here's where he's been going. He did Black Box a few years ago, which was you know a a Dutch film, and then he made the the first of two films I'm going to talk about here, Tricked. Now, Tricked is out on DVD right now, which is uh, a, also a Dutch film, uh, a very unusual Dutch film. This was made uh, four years ago, and uh, it is, it's kind of a, it's a bit of an experiment. Um, you know, there's a, it's, a, it's kind of a, like a non-narrative, uh, kind of reality TV-ish thing, at least the way that he gets into it. And then it becomes this, uh, this thriller and it's a it almost feels like a completely unscripted seat of your pants movie uh but you can tell he's trying to do something a little more interesting this thing was crowdsourced by the way this was funded completely through online donations so so he makes tricked which is okay which is okay but then it leads into l which i have on blu-ray right here uh which was an unexpected hit everywhere in france and here and got isabel huper her first oscar nomination would you ever have thought that an actress uh, with, the, with, a, with 50 years, practically 50-some years uh, behind her, I mean 45-some years, she's been at about 45 years, someone like Isabelle Huppert, who will still take her clothes off, by the way, even though she's, she's in her 60s, and have at it because she looks great. Um, would you have ever have thought that with her distinguished career, all the directors that she's worked for, the director who would get direct her to an Oscar nomination would be Paul Verhoeven? <laughs> That's just weird. I guess, but it's the right role. It's, it's said the yes. right thing at the right time. Also, how, how many Isabel Huppert films have been released in the United States to the extent that yeah. enough Academy members know it exists, it, it does well in specialty markets? It, yeah. it rarely happens. Strange. Well, anyway. She's, she's won like 75 Cesar Awards. Oh, it's ridiculous. She's just, I mean, she's one of the great actresses of all time. She's so subtle. And she's been doing this since the 70s. And, uh, you know, the character here is very much in her wheelhouse. It is, it's, the, you know, the typical kind of uh, duplicitous ice queen that she does so incredibly well. Uh, she's the head of a, a video game company. And yeah, but hell, you know what? I didn't like that part of it. You, you didn't what? like that part I of it? I don't like movies that try to depict video games. Because it always, it never that stuff was actually kind of funny. It though. never looks like a video game. It looks like, it looks like some... It looks like the filmmaker's conception of what a video game looks like. Yeah, true. It's such a minor part of the story, though. Like she's there's a, like some there's some monster that got her her. She's her a head tech on. CEO. She just she's yeah, a tech CEO basically, and um, she is then and then we get into some weird sexual stuff because then there's like this sexual assault in her home, and she has this weird kind of double life, and then there are these unusual neighbors, and it all kind of connects in a in a really uh, in a really twisted way. Uh, I you know I didn't love this movie. Uh, I know I didn't it was supposed love to, it either. It was I... originally supposed to be in English, and he couldn't get the funding in English because it was just too risque and to push too many buttons. And so he decided to do it in French. And Isabelle Huppert was available, and boom, Oscar nomination. Well, this is much more of a French film. I mean, this is like it's still a Verhoeven film, though. It sure. still goes, it still goes to those kind of sick, basic, instincty kind of extremes. Right, but but in France they can handle that. They, yeah. they won't freak out and there won't be op-eds all over the world. True. Like in, in America, 
you tell that story in English, yeah. our children will be destroyed. Yeah. What's happening with the culture? It's okay. I mean, it's you know, it's a, it, it's it's fine. It's fine. It's I, I prefer that other film that she made. She made another film last year, which was uh, the title of which Steve the film. No, no, her, her other her other French language film. Uh, uh, the uh, that one. Uh, 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 I'll look it up. Look it up. Look it up. Isabel and then we'll... Huppert. Yes. The other film I thought was uh, the better film and the better performance this last year. Uh, let's see. Oh, things to come. Things to come. That's, That's the right. Okay, new movies, Mark. New, new movies. movies. Uh, 4K of Patriots Day, Mark Wahlberg. This thing went nowhere. You know, it, 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 I know. This is going to be like, you know, it's going to make everyone feel in love with America again. It's going to make us cry, so, and then no one cared. So Mark Wahlberg and Peter Berg are becoming like the, the, the Scorsese and De Niro of uh, hard scrabble, blue-collar, working-class uh, American, you know, uh, uh, what do you call them? Um, uh, hard hat movies. Hard hat movies. Hard hat movies. That's what I'm calling them. Hard hat movies. So uh, you know, they went. We went from uh, Lone Survivor, which is you know a a, a war film, to uh, what was the the uh, the oil rig movie, Deepwater Horizon. Deepwater Horizon. Uh, that, I, I I thought that movie was good. It's good. It it's was fine. very. It was it was lean. It is and lean. Tight tells its story, saves its I people. I think Peter. I am willing to say that Peter Berg is now a totally underrated American auteur. I've been wanting to not no, say that. I wouldn't say he, auteur. You know what he is though. Peter Berg's movies. They have a style. They have an attitude. They have, and they all, they're all saying something. He really is a guy with something on his mind. And he, yes, they're they're hard hat movies. That's basically what it is. They're about blue collar working class guys. And Mark Wahlberg is the the you know his De Niro through which he channels that. And that's very evident in Patriots Day, which of course is all about the uh, the Boston Marathon bombing and how that transpired and how it was solved and the events that that uh, you know went on surrounding it. It is extremely well done. The the one thing that's a, that's problematic is the Mark Wahlberg character, who is an amalgamation of all of these other characters. This this guy did not exist, and it's a little bit. Yeah, that's. It's a little forced that he is at the he is at the middle of every single significant event in that entire thing. He's there. He's there. He's everywhere. Uh, so I would have preferred that they do it more, kind of in the in the vein of something like, uh, oh gosh, what's a good example? Um, the big short, right? Where mm-hmm. we don't have one person who's present at every single event in this entire episode, but we're following multiple stories that are all sort of orbiting the same central thing. I think a better way to have told this story would have been to do that. However, that said, it's still really, really, really well, well done, and it's very engaging. Well, the thing is that if, if, if you do that, you're pretty much making an Irwin Allen film. Yeah, yeah, right. kind of, yeah. So basically. I don't know whether you, whether Deepwater Horizon should be an Irwin Allen film. No, not Deepwater Horizon, but Patriot's Day I mean, probably Patriot's should be. Day. Yeah. Uh, anyway, gorgeous, gorgeous 4K work here. Uh, the Blu-ray is great too. I mean, this thing just looks really good. They did a great job mastering it. Uh, Lionsgate, you know, is is really really on the ball with this stuff. Uh, not a lot by way of extras. It's mostly EPK stuff, uh, featurettes and interviews and whatnot. But that's fine. Uh, the movie's the thing, and it's worth checking out. Yes. Uh, you, you know, let's talk about yeah. Let's talk about that. Twentieth Century Women, one of my favorite films of last year. I love this film. I love this script. I am so happy that Mike Mills is uh, is finally starting to get the recognition he deserves as a writer. I just and Beginners with um, Christopher Plummer was and Ewan, uh, Ewan McGregor was one of my favorite films of that year. And uh, Annette Bening, I, I just I don't understand how she didn't get seventy five Oscars for this. I just think it is her best performance ever. Yes, I'm going to say it. She plays <clears throat> this woman. She's got a teenage son, and the teenage son is a little bit troubled. So she kind of like uh, she asks some of the other young kids who live in this house, including Greta Gerwig, to kind of uh, you know serve as a role model. And so she's trying to understand her kids. She's trying to understand herself as she gets older. And I just think this is an extremely detailed and perceptive script. I just love this movie. It's it's extremely it's great character based stuff. It's a great snapshot in time. Um, it's a great drama, but it's still got laughs. It's uh, it's great. I just think this movie is absolutely terrific. I really, really loved it. Um, it includes um, an audio commentary with Mike Mills, which is worth watching or listening to because he's uh, a very, very smart guy, and I'm really, really, <clears throat> I'm really, really happy for him. So um, Billy Crudup is in this. He's terrific. Billy Crudup seems like he's having another moment again. He, he kind of is, and I'm glad. You know, it's time. 
So um, I think this thing has a lot to say about growing up, not only in the era in which the film takes place, but also today. It has a lot to say if you're, let's say, your mother's age and you're kind of, you know, you're into your, maybe your late your 50s or even into your early 60s and you're kind of wondering, you know, you don't really understand necessarily the younger generation or where you fit in it. And uh, I just think this film was just great. I, it was just delightful. 20th Century Women, a definite <clears throat> must-watch as far as I'm concerned. Yep. Um, also surprisingly good was A Monster Calls. I oh, was I love really this. not expecting much from this movie, I wasn't and I either. loved it. I wanted this to be uh, more like the BFG. Or, or I wanted the BFG to be more like this, I should say. I want, this is the movie I wanted the BFG to be. Yeah, and uh, J.A. Bayona who was directing the new Jurassic Park, which is a bit of a shame because he's, he's so he, talented. I don't he, want him to sell out already. He, dire- he directed the, uh, the, the Impossible, the, the, impossible, so the tsunami movie. He's great. He's really good. And uh, this is the best film Sigourney Weaver's done in a long, long time. Yeah. And, uh, the kid is great. The, uh, the monster is great. Liam Neeson's great in the voice. It's just, uh, you know, it, it, there's a tricky balance here because it's trying to be like, emotional and is trying to be, you know, magical CGI for the kids and also wants to be kind of exciting. And it's, a, it's, it's kind of a tough, it's, it's, it's a tough, it's, balancing it's a tough act. things to, ju- yeah. a tough thing to juggle, but it does. It just thing is just, it's, um, I'm surprised how tender it was. I love the fact that the stories that he tells, the little fables he tells are done in different animation styles Right, which adds even more visual yep. interest to it. It's great. It's and, really um, and what I liked about it too is that it's also pretty tough-minded. I mean, this thing is not like a, it's not a gentle. Even though it is kind of a gentle film, it, it, it has a lot of tough things to say. Because in the film, the little boy's mother is uh, is dying, and uh, he's got to come to grips with that and find a way to get on with the rest of his life. And there's a lot of tough-minded stuff going on here. So it's not just like a film for kiddies, you know. Um, so it's. Terrific. I was very surprised. It's got a making of featurette um, and also a making of the uh, the, the animated uh, little interstitials there, which were good. There were also some deleted scenes, neither of which needed to be in the film. And uh, yeah, so Monsters, uh, Monster Calls, I thought, is just it's very ambitious, maybe even a little bit too ambitious, but I just think this thing is hard to shake. It's a good movie. I agree. I agree. I'm surprised it didn't get more love uh, at award season. Speaking of movies that didn't get a love at award season, wait, oh. you know what? I'm still watching Silence. That's how long it is. <laughs> they, they, you know what? They, every, okay, know. Here's, here's a little bit of, of insight into, yeah. uh, into the LA film critics process. Every couple of years, everybody wonders whether the new Scorsese film will be, will be completed in time for us to look at it. It's true. Right? It's really true. And then, and then there's always there's that one moment when, when the distributor drops the bomb that like tomorrow at 3 a.m. they're going to yeah. screen it for us. Yeah. And no one can show up. Yeah. And no one does show up. And then they find a way to screen it again. And then by that time, it just seems like it's not exciting anymore, you know? <sighs> I, you know, uh, I went to the uh, the big screening of Silence. The first one or the second one? The first one on the lot where everybody else was, where we all walked in, uh, you know, bright and bouncy top of the morning, and then two and a half hours later, everyone kind of slogs out and feels as if we like we're the ones who've been tortured for our religion, uh, which is essentially what the movie's about. You know, it's interesting. Andrew Garfield was in two movies by directors with Catholic roots telling movies about someone with a religious conviction who suffers for it. And Hacksaw Ridge being the other one, the Mel Gibson film, even though the character in that is a Seventh-day Adventist. And here it's the story of priests, uh, Andrew Garfield and uh, Adam Driver in particular, who go looking for another priest who has gone missing, Liam Neeson. He hasn't gone missing, but they think he's gone native. Colonel Kurtz. It's very much in that vein. Uh, this is missionary, Portuguese missionaries uh, trying to make converts out of feudal Japan. And feudal Japan, of course, wants nothing to do with this Western religion. They want it, you know, everything is uh, traditional there. And uh, so they go looking to and, and come across a whole subculture of persecuted but very devout Japanese Catholics. And, of course, it is how they wind up sort of falling into this this feudal nightmare of, of torture and, and uh, religious persecution. Um, it is based on a novel, uh, for those who don't know. It is based on a novel which they handed us at the screening. And then, you know, we I had lunch there afterwards and Andrew Garfield sat at our table. And they did the usual thing, right, where everybody, all the, the talent sort of circulates the tables and they try to grease the wheels for awards consideration. And I had the feeling that really nobody apart from our good friend Justin Chang liked this movie. Justin thought it was the best film of last year. 
It was his favorite film of the year. And, and I get that. I get why a lot of people like it. It just it was too much of an ordeal for me. But it was beautifully made. Now, when, when, when Andrew I Garfield... prefer The Mission. The Mission is oh, this yeah. movie done right. Sure. Now, when Andrew Garfield sits at the table, and now Andrew is, is beholden to make stupid small talk with a bunch of people he yeah. doesn't know, yeah. but somehow he has to impress... That is, uh, unfortunately, the burden of stars at, uh, at, at, at press events. But in any case, um, so yeah, The Silence, based on, based on, based on a, uh, a novel. We're getting some bad audio there. There we go. Uh, the, uh, based on a novel by a rather renowned Japanese novelist who was, in fact, Catholic and who wrote the novel as a way of uh, sort of you know, wrestling with a lot of the issues of being from one culture and, and adapting to uh, adopting a religion from another culture. Anyway... None of that really, I don't think, is, is dealt with terribly well in the movie. But that being said, it has its it merits. It's beautifully shot. It's, for the most part, well acted. But um, I don't know. Kind of a misfire, right? And it was, I hate to say that about passion projects. But anyway, um, yeah, I, I, it should have been like the mission. So um, three interesting little indies here. Um, I will uh, go through real quickly. A Kind of Murder is an Andy Goddard film that uh, came out and kind of came and went uh, based on a uh, Patricia Highsmith novel. I'm kind of amazed that there are any Patricia Highsmith novels left that have not been made into movies, and this is one of them, and it didn't really go anywhere. Uh, it is It is one of the... Patrick Wilson is one of the most interesting guys, right? I mean, he's, he's like, he's not... I find a, him kind of boring. Well, he, that's the thing. He's, a, he's kind of boring, but he's sort of a major... I don't want to call him a star, but he's... He's been in major films, but he's not a major star. There you go. It's, it's, it's interesting, and he just kind of floats through these things. People like to cast him, but in any case, um, Patrick Wilson is the, is the star of this. The whole thing takes place in 1960 in New York, and uh, it's about a guy who um, develops a kind of vertigo-like obsession with someone who may have killed his wife. And um, it winds up pushing him psychologically into some interesting places. And then something happens, and I won't tell you what happens. But um, it's very stylishly done. Andy Goddard does a good job with it overall. But for some reason, it just kind of doesn't, doesn't really click. Uh, good supporting performances. Jessica Biel is absolutely just lovely. You would call her delicious. Uh, she's just wonderful. I wish she'd do more movies. Eddie Marsan, always a chameleon. Wonderful actor. Uh, but somehow, sometimes it just kind of misses. Uh, it's worth watching, uh, but don't crazily go out of your way. Uh, so anyway, that's uh, that is a kind of murder. And then a movie that I thought was lovely, uh, Ali and Nino. Uh, I thought this was wonderful. I don't know why this didn't get any kind of a serious uh, release. This is a uh, narrative film by Asif Kapadia, who of course has gone been a tremendous documentary filmmaker since his uh, debut film, The Warrior, which was supposed to be a foreign language nomination or foreign language submission from the UK, and for whatever reason, because it was in, largely in Hindi, it wasn't accepted. It's an amazing movie. Also got caught in that Miramax closet moment. And then he went on to do two amazing documentaries, um, uh, Senna, the uh, race car yeah. driving documentary, and Amy, which he won an Oscar yeah, for. Which is great. Tremendous. So uh, he's gone back to narrative filmmaking here. Ali and Nino. This went nowhere uh, uh, for no good reason. It's basically a Romeo and Juliet love story between a uh, uh, with a a woman who is Christian, a man who is Muslim. Takes place just on the eve of World War One in Azerbaijan, and then World War One intervenes and it becomes very Doctor Zhivago like. Um, does not have a huge uh, budget, but it's really literate. Beautiful screenplay by Christopher Hampton, by the way. And uh, I thought I thought it was just beautifully, beautifully done. Deserved a much better release, and I hope uh, Asif Kapadia um, gets more work out of it. I hope I hope it really, really uh, kind of catches fire with somebody. Uh, Arsenal is the latest movie from the people at Grind. So Ar- uh, Arsenal is uh, from Grindstone Entertainment. Grindstone is the company that does all the Stephen Scal movies that we always make fun of. They just make you know. Straight to video, maybe we'll get a theatrical release, um, just kind of the generic action cop stuff that we always see over and over. Lots of Steven Seagal, lots of Nick Cage. This is more Nick Cage. Um, Oh, and man, is this way too much Nick Cage. So here's a story in Arsenal. Um, Adrian Grenier is a, a good brother. 
Jonathan Skek is his bad brother who's got all kinds of problems, and Grenier's grown up to be a very successful businessman. Skek is – right. And, well, his brother does something untoward and winds up in the debt of Nicolas Cage, who plays the most ridiculous gangster you've ever seen in your life. Nicolas Cage's brother actually even shows up in this as an even badder gangster. Nicolas Cage has, like, the wig and the whole – it's just insane how, how over the top he is. Um, Nicholas Cage over the top? Oh my gosh! This is I've never this seen is, that before. This is beyond over the top. What, this happened is, to, what happened to John Cusack? What happened to him? Poor he shows John up in Cusack. movies like this as a cop. I know it's over, right? It's yeah, kind of over for him. It's kind of over. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, that's uh, that is highly forgettable. Um, Mark, do we want to hit those last two and then dive yes. into TV? Okay, Collateral Beauty Way. Now here's the thing: if you're going to do a movie about the uh, John Cusack is in this, by the way, oh. Collateral Beauty. I did not see this. Is it as bad as everyone said it was? Well, here's the thing. If you're going to do a movie about a parent who loses a child, you can either do it the Manchester by the Sea way, right? Yeah. Or you can do it the Collateral Beauty way. Uh One way winds up being nominated for 75 Oscars. And is this very deep and dark and... and, Emotionally textured. Emotionally textured, detailed journey that is not melodramatic at all. Or you could do Collateral Beauty, which is a big, soppy, lump-in-the-throat, manipulative, ridiculous, please award me, give me an Oscar, I'm going to cry on screen now, uh-huh. piece of crap. And uh, there you go. So if you like your uh, Death of a Child movies, really, really just ridiculously over-the-top and purple and stupid, you should go for Collateral Beauty. Um, Will Smith, who... You know what? I, I still love Will Smith. I do. I really do still love Will Smith. By the way, John Cusack is not in this. Um, it's Edward Norton. I forgot. I got it mixed up. Uh. Um, you know, it, it, I, I just don't see the appeal for this other than just give it to me. Now, give me an award. Now, David Frankel, you know. I like well, David Frankel as a director. Well, here's the thing. You thought, a lot. You thought maybe you were getting, you know, something like Devil Wears Prada, like kind of smart, acerbic into it. Turns out you were getting Marley and Me. Uh-huh. Which you also directed. Yeah, okay. It's something ridiculously sappy. So I just think this thing is a total failure. I have to say, though, hang on for a second. The Quiet Hour, which uh, is on uh, DVD, is uh, kind of not bad as post-apocalyptic things go. It's uh, Dakota Blue Richards plays this teenager who has to uh, defend her, uh, her farm, her parents' farm, and all the animals that live on the farm from these extraterrestrials who have been um, – have invaded and they they rape the earth of its resources and kill everybody, but they're around and she's protecting her farm. And um, because it's a basically a one location kind of movie, they're able to kind of use their budget and use their resources just to make that one location and the stuff that happens on that location totally look good and legit. So uh, I was expecting nothing from the Quiet Hour, but I do love my post apocalyptic films, and uh, this one is at very average, which considering its pedigree, I would take it to total victory. All righty, good. All so, righty then. TV. We're gonna hit some, uh, knock some TV out of the way here. Uh, Killing Reagan is based on is another one of those killing books based on the uh, Bill O'Reilly. The, one, another, it's a movie based on the books by Bill O'Reilly and Martin Dugard, who Martin Dugard uh, never really gets. <laughs> Everyone says it's a Bill O'Reilly book. No, it's the two of them. They they do all those books together, and Dugard is the is the historian, and Riley like puts his name on her. <laughs> who what knows? Is, what does Bill O'Reilly really do for the? Well, he he writes. I mean, they write. Them together, but Dugard is kind of the the, the main researcher. Can you I, please I put this in so I can? Yeah, who knows? It? Anyway, uh, you know what? I mean, this was better than I expected it to be because I thought some of the other ones, like Killing Lincoln, was just dreadful as a TV movie. It was just terrible. Uh, this is actually a little bit more interesting, mainly because they cast it well. I got to be honest with you, I never in a million years. Tim Matheson, come There's on, no Tim Matheson is Reagan like my, to Animal me? House. Tim, exactly, Tim Matheson's Animal House. You know what? He's really good. He's really good. I mean, compared to some of the people like James Brolin who've just done these cartoonish portrayals of Reagan, I I, I thought he was really really good. Uh, he kind of nails the mannerisms, but it's not overboard, and he gives it a sort of humanistic context. And of course, this is mainly about the uh, the attempted assassination of Reagan by John Hinckley and everything sort of surrounding that moment. Um, is it great television? No, but it's 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 got some interesting performances in it, and I I found it oddly compelling, believe it or not. Uh, Fuller House is just uh, I don't even know why this exists. Somebody had the idea to to to, to do a sequel series to Full House, only without. The the actors who made Full House, like the main, I mean, the, the three guys, they're not in it. 
John Stamos and uh, and the other two. Um, and I, you know what? This it just this was a <laughs> complete misfire. This was a terrible, terrible idea. Uh, it's it's borderline unwatchable. Thirteen episodes. The uh, the first season is this even coming back for a second season? Uh, yes, I believe it is. Are you serious? Well, why not? Oh my god! Netflix will do anything. I, I'm starting to think that Netflix is just going to greenlight 875,000 shows. They don't want you to go elsewhere. They yeah. want you to stay there. That's right. And they and they don't have to hit air dates, so they don't have. They're not restricted by hours during the week. They, uh-huh. they can have as much stuff on there as their hard drives can hold. When calls the heart, the heart of faith. Uh, this is the ongoing Hallmark uh, series based on the uh, Jeanette Oakey novels, and uh, they're all very House on the Prairie-ish, as one would expect for something produced by Michael Landon Jr. And uh, you know what? I it's just it's getting a little bit old at this point, um, uh, but. They have a following, so if you if you love these kind of homespun, folksy, quasi spiritual things, then you knock yourself out. Uh, Drunk History season four. Uh, the, the, this thing was funny for when it first happened, and yeah. it was like a unique idea, and everyone was kind of really getting off on it. I really liked the running lot, out of yeah, running out of gas. You're four seasons in now. Come on. Yeah, it's running out of gas. Uh, anyway, there's an election special on here that's not very interested. Deleted scenes and whatnot, and. Uh, I don't know. It, it's I never found the thing really that engaging, so it's super tedious by now. And then uh, season one of a Smithsonian Channel series called Polar Bear Town, uh, which is kind of basically a series that it's like it's like Shark Week except with polar bears. Does that make sense? So, uh, you're, so, so you're saying that soon there's going to be a? Uh, it's it's well no well, it's 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 all what's uh, what's that that shark movie series on Sci-Fi? Oh yeah, Sharkopolis, Sharktopolis. Yeah, something like Sharknado. That. Yeah, polar bear NATO. There you go. Uh, sort of polar bear. <laughs> anyway, so what yeah. happens is basically every fall in uh, Manitoba, in this town in Manitoba, uh, there are a thousand plus polar bears that migrate through uh, on their way over to the Hudson Bay, and this is essentially about that. It's uh, it's a little bit terrifying. It's not as interesting as it probably should be, but you learn a lot about polar bears. Stupid oh, polar bears. There it is. All right, Mark. Uh, Wolf Creek is a TV series based on the movie. It's a, it's a TV series you haven't seen based on the movie you never saw. And uh, <laughs> Wolf Creek is uh, it's about this, uh, this American uh, college girl, and she's in Australia. Her uh, family gets brutally slaughtered by a serial killer, and uh, she's going to get this guy or, uh, or, or uh, a goddamn die trying. I got to say, the, uh, the guy who plays the villain... Um, this guy John Jarrett. I don't know who he is or where he came from, but uh, he's good. He's kind of yeah. like a really good bad guy. I like nice. that guy. Um, this show is better than I thought it would be. Um, I like the fact that sometimes some of the episodes are kind of moody, and then some of the other episodes are you know super violent. And um, and I uh, I thought it turned the screws pretty well. I was very very uh, surprised at the Wolf Creek. It's a weird. It's a weird. Um, Piece of IP to resurrect. It's just yeah. a movie from ten, over ten years ago. That just Strange, you know why, why this? They're going after everything now. But it kind of works. Um, Insecure is a real surprise. I, I don't know uh, who the, this uh, Issa Rae is or was before she did the show, but she is fantastic, and it's such an interesting. What's what, what's 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 great about the show is that uh, it's an HBO show. It's about an Af- you know African American women trying to. You know, make it, make it in Los Angeles, make it in the big city. And I like the fact that a lot of times, because, because unfortunately there's so few opportunities for African-American mm. actresses to star in their own TV shows and star in their own films, that a lot of times they're like the, they're the hero, like hidden figures. They're the yeah. heroes. They're the ones who save everything because they're, so, they're just modern women who are going to just, they're just they, exactly. they, they've got it all together. In this show, it's not like that. Mm. They've, they're screwed up and they're insecure and they're trying to struggling and trying to make it and there's a lot of great comedy in there there's a lot of empathy in there the friendships seem uh, authentic and uh, I just don't know where this uh, show came from or where she came from but uh, it's great it's great so uh, I would definitely check out Insecure on HBO also uh, Mystery Science Theater uh, your favorite one of these goddamn things <laughs> that I'll take because I take them all this is this is volume 38 there are more Mystery Science Theater volumes than there are movies that they actually cover, which is amazing. I don't know how they do that they actually did an, They did an entire season where they actually uh, they, they, they ripped comedically over color bars. A whole season. 
Amazing. His color bars. Fascinating. Wow. What about the Indian? Do they, do they riff on the? Do they riff on the Indian? You know, I was talking to somebody the other day about how back in the day when we were very small children, yeah. every there were only three television networks, and they would sign off at the end of the day. Yeah. They would sign off at midnight and at one a.m. And you get the test pattern with the. Uh, you would get the, God the, bless America, whatever it was. It was a national anthem. Yeah. With a shot of the, of the American flag waving, and then after that, the, the they test would, pattern. They would go down for the night and the test pattern. With the Indian in the middle. That's right. Which never made any sense to me. No. So Million Dollar American Princesses is a Smithsonian Channel series, which is actually surprisingly interesting. Uh, it is uh, – Elizabeth McGovern hosts this. It is uh, six hours of looking at the, the women who basically were the model for her character in Downton Abbey, which are American heiresses from a particular period, new money – and who married into the British aristocracy and created these kind of these these sort of these you know the Ameri- the British aristocracy that was a little bit cash strapped and it's a really it's a really a interesting story. Uh, I had never heard of any of these people. A couple I had, but um, for the most part, it's a it's a completely new history and it's really really interesting. And I and I do recommend it for anyone who's especially a fan of the show. Um, Grace and Frankie is in its second season now. Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin. Uh, w- along with Martin Sheen and Sam Waterston. It's a pretty great bunch of people. This thing has gotten all kinds of uh, nominations, Golden Globes, um, and I don't think it's quite as amazing as as all that, but when you put two actresses of that caliber in, in a new show, I, you know, it's going to get a little bit of attention. I don't know how much more they can squeeze out of this, though. I really don't. I saw Jane Fond at one of our year-end parties. Yeah. She looks terrible. So much work done. Just tight. She looks like like Catherine Hellmond in, in Brazil. So it's not about the uh, aerobics anymore. No, she just looks terrible. Mm. I know. And when I say look terrible, you watch her on the show and go, "God, she looks beautiful." Well, yeah. You know what? She's gotten a whole lot of work done. Uh, she sits in makeup for three hours, getting all made up for the well, show. Well, when you can afford and it, they, they they shoot it with soft lighting. Before you know it, she's seventy years old, looks fantastic. And by the way, I'm saying this. I'm saying this as somebody who regrets. All the years that Jane Fonda took off to be married to uh, what's his name? Oh, uh, Ted Turner. Ted Turner. Yeah. I mean, that, she was denying us a lot of great performances, you know. But I guess now she's uh, she's back and looking older than ever. All right, Mark. I'm going to haul through some uh, Brit TV. Okay. You want to take a nap? It's time for Brit TV. The Brokenwood Mysteries, Series 3 on Blu-ray and DVD. It's beautiful on Blu-ray. Uh, this is Brit TV only because we, of course, extend this to the Commonwealth. This takes place in New Zealand. Uh, these are amazing mysteries in the, in the, firmly in the vein of uh, you know, Murdoch mysteries and all that, all that great stuff uh, from the UK. Basically, UK mysteries set in New Zealand. Feature-length mysteries, and uh, it's all about what goes on in the, you know, in the, in the tranquil environs of rural uh, uh, New Zealand. It's great. It's really, really great. Uh, that's always been a really interesting subject to a lot of people. Twin Peaks and uh, you know, lots of things like to deal with the underbelly of what seems to be the innocent portion of the, the world. But once you get into the, into the rural portion of the world, you lose all of that urban gunk, and that's not really the case. There's a lot of gunk in the, uh, the rural parts of the world as well. Anyway, amazing photography, really beautifully done, and fantastic performances by uh, Neil Ray and uh, Fern Sutherland, Nick Sampson. Really interesting cast. Um, I, I think these people are terrific. I, uh, I really want to see them make features, especially uh, Fern Sutherland. She is wonderful. So um, I highly, highly recommend The Broken Wood Mysteries, Series 3. Continues to be really, really, really strong writing. Um, we got uh, Ian Glenn getting all crusty and really aging into the uh, Jack Taylor character. Uh, this is set three of Ian Glenn as Jack Taylor, and uh, he continues to be really, really great in his prime. I'd love to see him do, uh, uh, you know, feature stuff again, but he's been doing a lot of great TV, uh, Game of Thrones, among other things, and Jack Taylor is just perfectly written for him based on the uh, Ken Brune books. Um, it, these are just really rock solid mysteries. It's great stuff. Um, absolutely perfect. Uh, the, it's right up there. You know, it's it, with the best stuff that you see on uh, on British uh, television. Uh, the three more really good one here. Uh, good ones here from uh, Acorn. Um, this one's Australian. This is the Code season two. Uh, the code is uh, um, has a really has a great cast. First of all, Anthony LaPaglia, who has apparently completely recommitted himself to just working almost exclusively on Australia, is great. Uh, people often forget Anthony LaPaglia is Australian. 
Like yeah. Sam Neill. Like Sam Neill, what does he do? He does uh, yeah. mostly Australian stuff. Yeah. And sometimes he appears but in La, La Paglia thing. became such a fixture in American movies and American television, talking like a New Yorker and with a name like La Paglia, you just assume, no, he's Australian. And uh, he's getting a lot of great work uh, now back in Australia. This is one of them. This is really, really great. It's a, it's a tech thriller series uh, that kind of centers around a, um, uh, a hacker who's trying to sort of unveil government corruption and uh, it, it really, really starts to get into some very, very prescient stuff, especially with all of our talking about hacking this and spying that. I mean, we've got, you know, whether or not you buy into the idea of Russians hacking the election, whether or not you buy into the idea of Obama spying on, uh, on Trump and Trump Tower. I do. I think that's totally true. <laughs> whether or not. Trump it's, does not tweet lies. But it's interesting that this is now what the conversation revolves around. It is everything related to surveillance and bugging and hacking. And uh, this, is our, this is our new world. And that is uh, that is fascinatingly a lot about the, the what this is about. That's uh, central to this, and some great performances in this thing. Uh, six episodes, really, really interesting. I hope uh, it continues to be an interesting show. Uh, it's, sec- it's second season, uh, original for Acorn TV. Acorn does, in fact, do Direct TV stuff. Not Direct TV, but they have their own uh, Acorn TV channel, and this is an original for it. Is the level which has some, uh, also some really, really, really great performances in it. This is a crime thriller series uh, that uh, gets into some kind of nasty, grungy stuff that you wouldn't be able to get into on, uh, on commercial television, which is what makes it nice. Even on commercial British television, it's able to go a little bit darker, drug stuff and, uh, and, and the like. And uh, I, I think this is just really, really terrific. Um, so that is, uh, that is the level... And then we've got Deep Water uh, with Noah Taylor and Yale Stone. Noah Taylor is such an interesting actor. That guy has has had the most bizarre career. He has played a young Adolf Hitler. He starred in Shine as the young Jeffrey Rush. I cannot figure out for the life of me, you know, I mean, he's not an easy guy to cast because he's a little bit hard to look at. But he's he's aged into a really interesting place. And uh, now he stars along with Yale Stone in Deep Water, which is um, a also really, really dark, grungy, kind of a nasty uh, look at the uh, 1980s and 1990s period when there were uh, murders of young gay men uh, about on which this is loosely based. And, uh, you know, it, it's uh, it's. Tough to watch, but uh, I think it's it's worth watching. Um, but it you know it uh, it doesn't go down easy. So uh, deep water, which is uh, nasty, nasty, ugly, mean stuff. I'm I'm often called uh, nasty, ugly, and mean. Oh, hang on. Let me uh, let me let me drop a, another couple in there real quickly. Um, on Blu-ray from BBC, Doctor Who: The Return of Doctor Mysterio. Uh, we haven't talked about any uh, Doctor Who stuff in quite a while, and uh, Peter Capaldi uh, stars along with Matt Lucas, Justin Chatwin, and Charity Wakefield in uh, a really interesting adventure that involves the return of a guy named Doctor Mysterio, who I'm unfamiliar with. But uh, this all takes place in uh, in New York, and it, it dovetails with a uh, with an with you know an American superhero that I don't know if they've ever introduced on Doctor Who before. Uh, but uh, you know, in any case, Doctor Doctor Mysterio. Why is there no like Doctor What or Doctor How or Doctor When? I don't know. Why is there just like Doctor Who? Yeah, I don't know. Ma- I don't you know. know what they need to do? They need to do like a whole like like the, a team of superhero journalists, and they have Doctor Who, What, When, Why, and How. Here's what this feels like. This this feels like they this feels like they wanted to get Doctor Who involved in the whole superhero thing, so they just sort of made up a story and and, and made an excuse to get him to New York. That's kind of what it feels like. Uh, the the whole this whole thing and this with aliens and uh, brains, uh, you know what I've never got it. Doctor Who. I don't get it. The ship the, the the ship sounds like the word retarded. So and there's really you, you can't have a show where the ship reminds me anyone of the word retarded. I include this only in the in the British uh, stuff because it's it's British produced for the most part. Mercy Street season two, which is the Civil War series. Uh, I'm kind of tired of this already. I don't know if have you watched any of this. You've been watching any of this. No. Mercy Street, the Ridley Scott produced thing. I kind of feel like like they've gotten as much out of this as they're ever likely to. I I don't I don't know if there's any more. I, Can I say something? Yeah. Okay. 
in, in thinking who we're going to give our next Lifetime Achievement Award to at LAFCA, yes. you got to re- you think to yourself, let's give it to Ridley Scott. Why would you do that? Well, Ridley Scott is like 70. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you're of the age where you can give somebody like Ridley Scott the Lifetime Achievement Award, even though he's Ridley Scott has been around, been around for so long, and he seems like he's been 50 years old for like 40 years. He just doesn't seem like a guy who is in his 70s. I know. I mean, tell me he would not deserve a Lifetime Achievement Award. No, nah, he would. Absolutely would. There's other actors like that who are now in their 70s that we don't picture them in their 70s. He's still working, though. You know, he's still at the peak. You know what? I have to say, the whole alien thing, um, I I just, I feel like the more I know about the aliens and where they come from, the less interesting they become. I agree. I just, I don't need to connect all the dots. I don't need to know that it was an American thing, the Earth, and they saved the weapons. I just, it's it's like you're over explaining the whole thing just to squeeze more money out of the franchise. Yeah. Even aliens was fine because in aliens, they just, they overran the the, the compound. That was it. They had to kill them. Now suddenly they got to do this whole backstory and mythology and the thing where the, the survivors came in the year zero and planted the seed of the aliens and the thing and the, and it's a weapons thing. I, who cares? Ah, you know it's exhausting. God damn it! All right, now I'm angry. So, uh, Docs, Mark, Docs, what got? Doc Martin, uh, Fire at Sea is a is a riveting documentary that was uh, uh, that did very well. Actually, won the Golden Bear for best film, not just best documentary, but best film. Um, and uh, it is about how can I explain this? There are there are uh, refugees, and they try to make their way from Africa and and the Middle East to Europe, and they get on boats and risk their lives. On very similar to you know, let's say you're going from Cuba to the U.S. Mm-hmm. So as they make their way from Africa or the Middle East to Europe, there is an island that is about 150 miles south of Sicily called Lampedusa. And that's where these guys will sometimes have a little port of call. Maybe they'll rest. It's yeah. like a bit of halfway. But people live in that. People, Italian people live on that island mm-hmm. while these refugees are getting off to go hang out while they make their way from Africa or the Middle East to, to the mainland, to mainland Europe and Italy. And so this movie, Fire at Sea, is all about these immigrants who – it's not only about the immigrants who are coming there. It's also about the people who live on this island. And how they try to live their life knowing that there's that they're sort of in the middle of this global crisis of immigrants coming to Europe, and it's it's a great study in contrast. It's like, again, you've got this global crisis, and you've got this everyday, you know, ho hum life of these people who live on this island, including the, the kid that they talk to a lot. You also get a sense of the uh, of the rescuers and how overwhelmed they are. And you get a sense of the uh, the refugees and how just how anguished they are and how confused and scared they are, and it's great. It, it reminds me a little bit almost of the new journalism. Remember, like new journalism back in the day sure. was all about doing you know news reporting in a more literary style. Mm-hmm. Fire at Sea is a little like that, where it's a documentary, but it's told in this way that is just so free range. It's just it's just, it's, it's really interesting film. Mm. Um, so that's Fire at Sea. Oscar nominee. Oscar nominee, one, uh, definitely. And then there's also Tower. Now, Tower is an interesting film. Tower is uh, – it, it, last year was the 50th anniversary of one of the first. I like the, the animation in this or what we can call animation, I, but I felt it was a – it was a, a thin uh, – it was more flash than substance. It my, doesn't really address the, the the story. My 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 sent my fear was that the uh, that the rotoscope animation that they used to yeah. to tell the story of the day in 1966 when this former marine climbed up to the uh, to the top of the tower at the University of Texas with a gun and he killed 14 people. He just started to just pick them off with a rifle, and uh, it's considered one of the first school. It's not the first you know, major school shooting. And there's very little archive footage about the event. It was in 1966. So the directors, what they do is they rotoscope a lot of this in animation, almost like uh, like Waking Life. Remember the, the Richard Linklater film? Yep. And my fear was that they were going to use the animation to take attention away from the fact that there really isn't a lot of archival footage. No, and there's not a lot really in terms of survivors and people who were there at the time who can talk about it. And, I, and I, you know, if it wasn't for the drama of the event, the idea that you hear... I mean, there are some real life... There's this one woman, this one woman who was pregnant, and she was lying there bleeding next to her dead boyfriend, Mm -hmm. and only because this one total stranger was whispering in her ear, right, trying to keep her conscious, that she did she even survive. And there's a a couple of great stories like that. 
my sense is that I don't know that you needed the whole rotoscope thing. I, it felt like an affectation. I you agree. Know, to keep your interest. I and the story should be interesting enough. So I, I, I would recommend Tower for the, the historical value. It's a fascinating story. But I, I wish it would have been told in a more conventional style. I agree. Uh, all right, we've got uh, a few other docs here. The Creeping Garden is from Arrow. This is a really unusual uh, documentary. It, it's a, I, I, you know, a documentaries that deal with things that I've never heard of before are uh, either interesting or confusing. And this is about the world of plasmodial slime. You know what plasmodial slime is, Mark? It sounds like something they'd say on Star Trek The Next Generation. Yeah, all right. So uh, this, there's a lot of research that goes into this. And it's, you know, the, 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 basically what the idea is that you can um, – that this slime is, is like this. It is – you know, it's, I mean, it's a lot, <laughs> right? Plasmodial slime is an actual – it's living stuff. You know what Phil Klein told me when I had dinner with him? Huh. He said that only 10% of the population can be – can be induced to sneeze by staring at a light. You know, like when you try to really? sneeze, and, and it, you, you stare at a light, and that gets you to sneeze? He said only 10% of people can be forced to sneeze in that, ma- in that manner. Uh, Does that seem weird to you? I thought of like everybody can okay. be forced to sneeze by staring into a light. All right. Okay. Well, anyway, uh, plasmodial slime is alive, and it's That's weird. That's a great name for a band, by the way. And it's 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 like the it's like what the blob probably was, except it's not no, trying to take the over blob. the earth. I oh. know, I know. It's so upsetting again. Uh, in any case, it it get it, this almost feels at times like a science fiction mock documentary because you think that could not possibly be so, but it is in fact. So, I mean, this is kind of a weird cult documentary, The Creeping Garden. It is, uh, it's probably worth looking at, I guess, if you like things that are unusual, if you just want something to kind of float your boat that's not the usual thing. But anyway, loads of extras on this thing. Um, watch at your own risk. And then we have a couple of terrific ones here uh, from Icarus, which are bo- have both been released previously, as I understand it, but to the academic market, not uh, to the... Uh, the uh, Average regular home DVD buyer. So this is nice. Now these things are available not for the you know like nine hundred thousand dollar licensing fee for academic institutions. Uh, to tell the truth includes two documentaries: uh, "Working for Change," documenting hard times, nineteen twenty nine to nineteen forty one, and "The Strategy of Truth." The documentary goes to war, nineteen thirty three to nineteen forty five. These are two films uh, by Calvin Skaggs and David uh, Taylor or David Van Taylor. And uh, they are essentially all about the um, uh, those moments when uh, the, the 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 working class, the American labor movement, sort of uh, was birthed. And uh, the strategy of truth is probably the most interesting one because it deals specifically with propaganda filmmaking during World War II and uh, the, the you know how it de- how it evolved, especially in the United States, working for change. Deals with the uh, social, the the social um, nonfiction film as it evolved during the first uh, few decades in the English language world, and um, a lot of interesting stuff here. It is very much about uh, a, those first few crucial decades of the twentieth century, and uh, and how nonfiction filmmaking really dovetailed with movies about the common man, and especially with propaganda during World War II. Uh, it's interesting stuff. Um, I was not familiar with, at all with the work of Calvin Skaggs and David Van Taylor, but um, worth uh, worth discovering now. And then A Boatload of Wild Irishmen, The Life of Robert Flaherty, is absolutely great. Uh, this is wonderful. I have seen this before, and I'm thrilled that people can now get this again. Uh, Robert Flaherty, of course, is the father of the documentary film. Uh, Nanook of the North is, you know, and his other films are all considered sort of seminal works in the in the documentary field. And uh, there was even a documentary, f- uh, a, uh, a non-documentary film uh, starring Charles Dance that was called uh, Kablunak, which was made probably about 20 years ago. Never been released on DVD or Blu-ray. Needs to be. It's a really, really good movie. In any case, this is uh, all about Flaherty and his life and his work, and it's wonderful. It is, uh, it, if you have a documentary collection of movies that are about film history and, and significant film figures, this is one that absolutely has to be there. It is really, really superb. It includes a great 16-page educational booklet. Really terrific. Yes. All right. Um, oh, we have to cover this. D- have you seen this? I have seen it. 
What do you think of it? I liked it. I mean, yeah. Why not? Come on, you're talking about uh, Mr. W- Spock. But made by Leonard Nimoy's son, Adam Nimoy, made a movie called uh, For the Love of Spock. And uh, I would have expected this to just be another one of those sort of family vanity things, like, wasn't my dad great? My dad was Spock. But it's not, actually. It really is... It really is pretty – he got everybody to talk to him on this. Lots of great interviews. And uh, I, I thought it was um, very, very touching and very insightful. And uh, it kind of adds a great deal to the whole – to everything that we know about Star Trek and Leonard Nimoy and so forth. Well, also there was interesting stuff there about alcoholism. Yeah, right. I, I didn't realize that alcoholism kind of ran in the family. Yeah. Because his son dealt with alcoholism and Nimoy, Leonard, also a little bit there. And uh, it's just a fascinating documentary, you know, it, because it was tough-minded. It, 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 he's honest about uh, how estranged he felt from his father for a lot of years there and how they finally, you know, wound up in some sort of detente. And um, so it was tough-minded, a lot of good interviews, a lot of fun, you know, behind-the-scenes photos and whatnot. And, uh, yeah, if you love Star Trek like I love Star Trek, I was very happy to watch this, and I was surprised at how, uh, at how complex uh, it became in terms of his relationship I with agree. his father. I agree. So definitely worth watching, not just uh, not just from a, like a nerd fan thing, but just because it's an interesting story of a father and son who were kind of like, you know, had a difficult relationship. All right, we are uh, right at the end of the show, so I am going to ca- uh, cap things off with uh, some uh, recommendations for foreign language TV shows. Everybody's getting in on this act now. Well, not everybody. Uh, MHZ have been uh, kind of the lone occupiers of this space for a while. Kino is getting in on this game as well, and they're finding some really, really great foreign language shows as well. Uh, so here are the cream of the crop right now. The Bureau is a French-language show, uh, basically an espionage show um, dealing with the, you know, the age of terror and what's going on in France, uh, which there is a lot to... It's like Homeland in France, and it is really, really top-notch. It's extremely well done. Very well written. Uh, if you've been wondering what Matthew Kosovitz has been doing as either an actor or a director, he's in this, and he does a really good job. Uh, there's you know, inter- it, it, there's intersection with the CIA and all kinds of stuff. It's a really interesting show. Uh, two seasons from Italy, uh, Romanzo Criminale. How's my Italian, Mark? Uh, be- better than my English. That's uh, 22 episodes in two seasons. You can buy them each separately. Ten seasons in one, uh, ten episodes in one, twelve in the other. Uh, and this uh, this is a little bit uh, kind of in the same vein, uh, but it's much more. It's a little more epic. Uh, this deals with a guy who wants to uh, become kind of the the godfather of Rome. He wants to be the Tony Montana of Rome. Uh, Francesco Montanari is uh, is the actor. It is absolutely terrific. And this thing spans decades. It is loosely based in fact, but it is uh, it has a real kind of uh, godfathery quality to it. Um, very bloody, but uh, really well acted. Very interesting. Good, solid uh, Italian television programming. And then uh, ten episodes in I Am the Ambassador. Uh, this is a Danish language show, which is a documentary series. This is not a narrative. This is a documentary series that is specifically looking at the... Um, uh, the life of the former U.S. ambassador to the Kingdom of Denmark, Rufus Gifford. And, uh, okay, that's a silly name. Uh, you know what? He was very involved in the Obama administration as well. And uh, it is, uh, it is quite, an, quite an interesting look at what it is to be an ambassador because most of us don't really think of being an ambassador as, like, what do you do? Like, what's your job? Just to you, sit and- you, you ambass. Exactly. <laughs> right? Uh, what, is, what does it mean to ambass? I have no idea. Uh, and then we have this interesting Celtic noir thriller, is what they call it, uh, Court Plus Anum, seasons one and two. This is from MHZ. Uh, this is an Irish show, and it is uh, it, it pretty darn intense. I, I, y- y- this, is, this is right up there with the, uh, the very, very best of uh, um, uh, British television, the difference being that it is actually in the Celtic Irish language. So and Ooh, that's that, 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 that's a funky sounding language. That is a funky sounding language, it's and cool. it's really it is cool when you watch it. Uh, and it's nice to know that there's actually still like native language television programming in the Celtic parts of the United Kingdom, uh, which I didn't even realize. I had no idea. But uh, how do you even write that in a script? I don't know with all those accents and all those letters. How do you? I just don't know. Anyway, 
It's a really, really gritty, interesting show. Uh, gets into some kind of nasty stuff. Pedophilia even factors into this at one point, but it's it's otherwise very, very solid. And then uh, we've got three seasons of the Wiesensee uh, saga. Uh, seasons one, two, and three. Uh, I am less enthused about this than some of the other stuff, uh, perhaps because I'm half German and I, I just tend to kind of my eyes glaze over sometimes with uh, these big these big sweeping sagas that take place in uh, in Germany because uh, I just know a lot of these people. But uh, if you're not as jaded as I am, you will probably find a lot to really enjoy in this. Uh, these are this is really a, a huge. This is I don't want to call it like a television version of Berlin Alexander Plots, which was already a television version of Berlin Alexander Plots. But it, it, in terms of getting into some of the Cold War stuff, East German, uh, East Germany, and East Berlin, uh, it, it does it, you know how that affected families and how that affected these families in particular. It, it goes into some pretty pretty rich stuff. And uh, over the course of these three seasons, there's a there's a lot of really really interesting historical stuff that did ha- actually happen in the 1980s. So the Wiesensee saga, three seasons. And then lastly, we've talked about this before. I just want to make sure everybody knows that uh, a French village also from MHZ, uh, continues. And we have season six now. It takes place in 1945. It is the first season after the war. This, of course, is uh, all about a French village, that it, uh, what it endures throughout the war years of World War II. And uh, now that we've gotten to season six, we're finally out of the war. So we're getting into some interesting stuff as they continue this saga of this village. Uh, there's, a now, there's a whole new tapestry of historical events to deal with, specifically the post-war stuff. So, uh, very, very cool. Continues to be a very solid series. I highly recommend it. All right, with that, Mark, we are done. Um, Whee! And uh, you are you are heading off once again to uh, across the pond, aren't you? I'm going to, uh, I will not be uh, here next week because I will be in uh, Merry Old uh, France. It's called Merry Old France, right? Fantabulous. Wonderful. I'm, I'm going to a club run by David Lynch. Ooh, very nice. Well, Silencio is a club in Paris. Yeah. Uh, uh, my girlfriend got invited. It's, it's a, it's a, here's the thing. It's a members-only club before midnight. Nice. You show up after midnight, anyone can come in. Fantastic. And she got invited to some screening of a TV show that we're working on. So uh, we will be hanging out at a club that is either... Uh, we're not quite sure what, 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 David's, uh, what, what David does with this club. He might just put his name on it. We're not sure. But it's definitely a David Lynch club. He knows about it and has signed off on it and has been involved in something that. We'll have a merry, jolly old time in uh, in ye old France, and uh, we will see you when you're back. Thank you. Uh-huh.